Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. I'm Sally Lasky, NSVRC's Evaluation Coordinator, and on this episode, we continue our discussion with Dr. Julie Sweetland from the Frameworks Institute to explore specific recommendations on how to frame childhood adversity as a preventable and solvable problem. Welcome back to the podcast, Julie. This is Laura Palumbo, NSVRC's Communications Director, and we are excited to continue our conversation about framing childhood adversity. If you missed our last episode, you might want to go back and listen to that first. I agree, Laura. This is Sally Lasky with the NSVRC, and I'd highly recommend folks go back and listen to part one. Um, It's been wonderful to be able to focus on solutions to the common framing dilemmas in discussing childhood adversity um, that we discussed in our last podcast. Um, Julie, in reframing childhood adversity, promoting upstream approaches, you talk about the need to position child adversity as a public issue. Can you walk us through what that would look like? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much uh, for having me back. Um, So it's easy for people to think of children and families issues as private concerns. And while more Americans than ever agree that healthy child development is a shared public concern and there is a role for policy, um, we we do, if we're, we're looking for that role of policy and we're looking for big preventative systems Uh, then we we really need to nudge the public on that and help them remember that this is something that affects us all. So in framing childhood adversity, um, you know, we've moved away. A lot of folks working in violence prevention and child abuse and neglect and those sorts of things have moved away from the emotional story, zooming in on the, you know, horrific experience of abuse. And I think that that's an important move. Keep making that move. But we have room, I think, to grow in making the story one where we all have a stake and a role in outcomes that matter. Making this a story about us, not about them, the people experiencing the problem. So, you know, just being very consistent and disciplined and asking ourselves, am I talking about this in a way that is emphasizing shared fates? We want to remind people that we all benefit from child well-being We want to also show that the consequences of child adversity are also shared, right? Not just affecting that child, but affecting other things we care about, great education outcomes, healthy workforce, thriving communities. And we want to connect, I think, to our collective responsibility to children there that is present and available in our thinking. We want to tap into that, remind people that we have it. We're in that we're all in this together. It's on us. We have a duty to, to make sure that children are doing well and remind people that our actions are part of what maximizes or undermines children's potential. So it's not just that instance of adversity um, and the, the people who are involved in that specific incident, but what we all do. And so We can do that by using language like, you know, every child is filled with tremendous promise. We have, and we have a shared obligation to foster their potential. 
that's kind of that our responsibility and our, our shared responsibility um, ask, um, way of, of talking about the issue. That's great. And um, I would just reflect from NSVRC's um, research in, in as well um, on recommendations for uh, framing sexual violence, that that collective responsibility and that role we can all play was such an important part of it and an important part of overcoming um, some of the um, disconnection that people <laughs> feel to um, to the um, to the issue and to the urgency of um, of uh, of a social issue that um, can seem so so large. Um, so it was great to see those really tangible examples of talking about um, the uh, the role that we each have to play and um, really uplifting the potential of all children. Um, I think that that's a lot of uh, a lot of um, language that will be really relevant um, to folks in uh, sexual violence prevention as well. Um, one thing that, that I wanted to talk to you about was um, the topic of health equity and racial justice, which we understand are so critical to um, our work to prevent violence. What recommendations do you have for talking about those societal and community level risk factors for child adversity? So, you know, we want... I think we want to really um, integrate and embed a focus on racial and gender justice into all of our communications on childhood adversity. I think that's particularly true when it comes to topics closer to, to the issue of sexual violence. And in general, um, I think that the, the reframe I would recommend for a field on this issue is, you know, A, talk about it, right? Don't be afraid to talk about it, but B, talk a little less about who it's happening to, right? Less about the outcomes or the, the, the heightened negative outcomes that we see in particular communities and more about the how. Show how the external conditions that we have created as a society are channeling more stress and um, fewer resources, right? Into certain communities or towards certain groups. So that is part of that telling the story of us versus them, but it's, I mean, sorry, uh, it's us, not, not them, but it's also a move of, of showing what affects what, really highlighting the big picture social conditions that increase the risk of adversity, um, explaining how they work, and then connecting that process to the problem it causes. And what that means for us working on children's issues and, um, and sexual violence in particular, is perhaps moving away a little bit out of our traditional topics that we're comfortable talking about and into some of the topics that are adjacent to the issue and actually really helping to cause the issue, but, but not on our list of go-to things. Things like, um, I don't know, housing, for instance. So if we can really show how decades of housing discrimination including, you know, history, but also current unfair lending practices mean that Black families are less likely to live near good jobs and more likely to experience pressure from low wages, long commutes. That shows, right, really a condition that can lead to chronic stress, which could make a, abuse and neglect more likely, um, really helps people understand, you know, why there may be um, different um, norms around parental supervision and family caregiving that can set up risk situations. So, um, and, and we can tell a story like that for lots of different groups. I don't mean to, to single one out, 
But instead of showing um, statistics, you know, kind of naked numbers, as I say, and, and trotting out a statistic um, that's particular to one group in, in an effort to get people to care, um, it's fine to, you know, to say, hey, this is, this is a, a justice issue. We need to care about the experience of this group. But don't do that just by saying they're experiencing it more because that leaves the door open to, to assuming it's something about that group and their values and their characteristics rather than what we have set up as a society collectively. So this is connected in a lot of ways to what you, you just shared. Uh, and I'm wondering what ideas you have to help us focus both, right? We're doing a lot of both and, I think, in our approaches. Like, how um, can we focus both on the resilience of children and the need to develop and support factors in our communities and in our society that are protective against abuse? Oh, that's such a good question and really important. So, Part of, of telling a resilience story is keeping possibility in the picture. So if we overemphasize or overstate the causal relationship between early adversity and later outcomes, then we run the risk of leading people towards fatalism and, and then engage, you know, they stop engaging with the issue because damage done is damage done in their mind. So we want to point people in a more helpful direction, still maintaining scientific accuracy and emphasizing that these serious outcomes are possible, um, but also consistently advance a sense that if we put in the right supports, people have the capacity to thrive despite adverse life experiences. And when our researchers talked with adults who identified themselves as having experienced a, a great deal of adversity or toxic stress in their, child, in their own childhoods, um, that that um, need to emphasize the possibility of resilience was particularly important when in reaching that audience. So people would either, you know, if we didn't do that, as we were testing messages, people would reject the idea. They don't, people don't like to think of themselves as defeated, right? And so they'd say, well, of course I, I went through this experience, but, but I turned out okay, or I'm making progress. Um, and they felt that it sapped them of their agency, right? That it really erased the things they had done to to restore, rebuild well-being. So really keeping that possibility in the picture through our language, but also specifically saying, you know, with the right supports, um, people, you know, resilience is the is a possible feasible outcome within reach. Um, and, you know, some of the language we can say, instead of saying, you know, ACEs are traumatic and have lifelong consequences from chronic illness, mental illness, um, we can say they're common and in the absence of support, they can cause long lasting harm. So emphasizing that they're prevalent, but, but saying, you know, that's really, it's, if we don't step in and respond, then that's when they cause harm, because we know that the buffering effect of responsive relationships really will um, interrupt that potential toxic stress response, which sets off the chain of, of lifelong health and mental health consequences. So thank you for going over that, Julie. Um, I must say, as you were as you were going um, 
as you're answering Sally's question, it um, it made me remember how, as I was reading this report, one of the things I really enjoyed about it was that there were these nuggets that um, that your team messaged in very, very memorable ways. Um, for instance, when you were earlier talking about getting under the skin <laughs> to shape um getting under the, sh the skin to talk about how external conditions shape health and uh, development outcomes. And just now when you were talking about keeping possibility in the picture, I was like, oh, those are more of those <laughs> great white lighters. They're all throughout the, the report um, that I, I, I feel like are, are going to be such great um, applicable pieces for people to carry over into their work. Um, so in addition to talking about child development and the capacity for resilience and, um, you know, the getting under the skin topic, um, what are some other messages that can help us illuminate the underlying social issues that increase risk for childhood adversity? Oh, good question. So if we're, if we set ourselves the goal or task of really being consistent about advancing the idea that it's social conditions and context that shape family life and children's experiences, um, then that's, that's the first move, but it can help to, uh, to have a metaphor that helps people visualize that, that can really emphasize the external pressures on families rather than um, what used to be called family dysfunction in the ACEs study. I'll just put a plug out, plug here for reframing, rephrasing that to, to family to household challenges um, rather than family dysfunction. Um, but to go back to the metaphor, we found the metaphor of an overloaded vehicle was really helpful in getting people to think about not just stress, but how stress can lead to a breakdown in care for children and also um, the role that society can play in reducing stresses on families. So in a nutshell, this, this metaphor is, um, is something, uh, you know, like just like a vehicle can only hold up so much weight before it stops moving forward. Challenging life circumstances can overburden families, making it hard for them to provide the best kinds of care and support that they would like to. Um, and we, you know, to prevent a breakdown in care, we can keep the heaviest load from weighing our families down. I wouldn't talk about an individual family in this way, so to get people to think about the general concept. Um, but that metaphor we have found really helps people, um, uh, it helps them think and talk about the connections again between the bigger picture and child adversity and it helped them think about how factors such as employment, transportation, healthcare shape children's environments. But it also really critically boosted people's sense that these problems can be prevented. So the number, you know, I'd say the one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge when it comes to child adversity and particularly sexual violence is that people believe it can't be prevented. And that's what we talked about in the last episode. Uh, but this metaphor helped people say, oh, well, before it breaks down, we need to do something, right? Like we shouldn't be loading all that unemployment and stress and, you know, neighborhood violence and unsafe housing, you know, we can do something there and then that vehicle can keep on moving, right? And so it was really helpful um, for that. So it does both and, right? Helps us think bigger and more structurally, but also with more efficacy, more a sense of where we can step in and make a difference. I really appreciate the metaphor. That helps me a lot. Another thing that we talk a lot about with folks and something that we know is a way to do this work at the big picture level 
is to focus on policy level strategies for creating change. Can you talk about how sharing information about promising policies can help shift people's thinking to understand, like you said, that solutions do exist and are possible? Yes. Well, if you are leaving out solutions of your messaging, you are leaving possible support on the table. That's the one, you know, takeaway is, is to some extent it, it, from a messaging point of view, it doesn't matter so much what solutions you, you met. I mean, obviously people should be advancing evidence-based effective solutions, but um, just saying there are things we can do um, really shifts the tone of the conversation. Um, so you want to make sure your solutions, you know, you just want to signal that solutions exist in multiple ways through your tone, through your word choice, but also the examples of specific things you'd hope that that group would, would take up and act on. Um, that all can work together to create a sense that change is both necessary, which we're pretty good at talking about as advocates, but also possible, um, which, you know, is sometimes uh falls falls on the wayside. So the, the goal is to balance efficacy and urgency. So the sense that something can be done um, with this is a real problem, we need to act to address it now. Um, when we do that, um, I think some best practices are to tell a solution story rather than, a la- than offer a laundry list of all the things you think could make a difference. Um, if you list that comprehensive set of promising policies or programs, it might help you feel better and more comprehensive, like you've solved the problem or you've at least articulated how to solve the problem, but it doesn't do much to help people grasp exactly how those solutions would make a difference. And that's usually the block to adopting the solution. So it's more effective to explain a single solution well in a given communication than it is to offer a comprehensive list of everything you hope we could accomplish. Um, so in general, you know, just remembering that the, the challenge here is not to convince people that the problem exists. People know, particularly when it comes to sexual violence, that it's a widespread problem. Um, it's more to convince them that we can do something about it. And so making it clear that change is within reach by um, highlighting those collective policy level solutions um, that actually helps you redefine the problem in some ways, right? So it's not just um, bad, right? It's bad and it doesn't have to be, uh, which, which makes that um, more helpful. And that's going to move people towards that, that sense that we have a shared obligation to set up better structures, better systems, and, and, and more equitable social conditions. I know that Laura uh, has a question uh, that she wants to ask you, but I just wanna thank you right in this very moment for naming something that we don't always name when we're talking about messaging, but I think you provided a great example. I am one of those comprehensive list makers. When I wanna message about something and get a tip sheet out to someone, I wanna try to have something in there so that everyone will find something they can connect with. And I think your, what you just described as a different, a different way to have a compelling storyline and something that's accessible to people is to shift the focus from what's going to make me feel better in doing this work and knowing that I'm trying really hard 
and shift it and really understanding from the research about what we know about how people respond to information. So thank you for that gift that you, you just gave me. That's going to stick with me. That's great. And um, I also wanted to, to add, Julie, the, the, um, this idea of promising um, examples, stories, um, really bringing uh, prevention to life was such a strong theme in our research on, um, on framing as well. And the other piece of it that we found was that it doesn't necessarily need to be all that comprehensive. It can be an example specific to one local school, to one, <laughs> to one workplace, to one community. Um, but what people need is that story that can um, help them connect the dots that actually change is possible. Um, that, that would, um, what is, um, you know, to them seems insurmountable or seems um, very abstract to have this tangible example of actionable steps in that direction. Um, and so I think that that is, um, is something that, you know, is, um, you know, can be very um, challenging for practitioners in our, in our, <laughs> in our fields. Um, it can, it can feel um, very, um, it can feel very difficult. It can feel very difficult to sort of, um, to encapsulate, um, our work in maybe one initiative or one <laughs> one strategy, um, and, and folks do want to be so um, so um, comprehensive. But there is this great value <laughs> to when we um, when we uh, when when we take those specific stories and 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 really um, through that <laughs> give people that 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 sense of um, uh, of of belief that there there is um, that 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 change can happen, a, a tangible example. And then, you know, that creates the possibility for us to, to, um, to maybe open the door for more. Whereas I think we oftentimes want to, <laughs> to, um, to, to bring out, um, you know, uh, so much comprehensive information out of the gate. Um, yeah, it, it, it really, um, it, it applies very well to um, preventing sexual harassment, assaults, and abuse. So think, um, if I could just say, think about the storytelling you guys are up against, right? I mean, on any day of the week, we could watch hours and hours of crime dramas that offer precisely one solution to sexual abuse, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's enforcement. And I'm not saying we should take that away, but we need the public to understand a much wider range of what can be done. Um, so keep your list. You're, I'm glad that, you know, folks like you and folks who are listening to this have the comprehensive list, but the list is for you. It's your plan for what you need to message. It's not the message itself, right? And, and so helping that, that much more, you know, robust rep repertoire of things you all know can be done uh, to get ahead of this problem and reduce this problem, um, but make that come alive in the same, you know, so that people can remember it and because they already have a story that they know. Um, and it's a very simple story. You need to give them lots of other simple stories that show prevention and, uh, you know, more compassionate, involved uh, responses. Um, that's a great example, Julie. And one thing that I think, um, you know, is uh, a, it's a great way for us to also bring into the conversation that we not only have to think about um, the frames that our audience is operationalizing and the frames that we um, are, are trying to cue, but also just the surrounding environment <laughs> and, uh, and, and so much um, of, uh, so much of uh, the, the information and um, so, so much of the background information that people are operating with is from the media, is from news. Um, so we do talk a lot about that 
um, with um, with news frames and kind of also thinking about how we can bring these strategies directly into um, work with media. So I really appreciate that example. Um, one question that I'm very curious about um, is if there was anything that really surprised you doing this research and um, if there's anything that you're really excited about. Yeah, so I don't know that there were any hidden surprises in this one because it was a review of and a pulling together of, re of topics that we've been researching for, for quite a long time. So what has been surprising, um, given that we have, you know, work partners like you and the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and Prevent Child Abuse America, who sponsored, you know, this particular uh, set of resources we have out right now, we're working with them for, you know, you all for 10, 15 years. What surprised me was the level of interest in uh, kind of a fresh take on this. Um, so, you know, this has been one of our most downloaded reports and I don't know how long um, I did a webinar and uh, the, the hosts had to up their capacity for people to join, you know, th th two or three times um, and we had to have an overflow room and Facebook live. Um, so, you know, the, I know that the, the field of folks working on child welfare in some form or another is huge. So it could just be a function of that, but I get a, I really am getting a sense that people working in this issue know there's, we've, we've perhaps hit a plateau in what we can accomplish um, right now with, with, you know, explaining uh, what promotes and what undermines healthy child development. We need to keep doing that and a little bit more. And I feel like the, the set of framing um, ideas that we brought forth that were really about leaning into prevention and how to expand out and connect to some of the other big policy conversations we're having as a nation now, whether that is uh, racial justice or, or really economic mobility and family support um, through some of the policies that are coming out of Washington right now. Um, Post-pandemic, you know, kind of how are we going to rebuild in, in ways that feel good to all of us? You know, we need to be part of those conversations. And um, so the level of enthusiasm, I think, for for checking these things out and for joining uh, what someone on one of those calls called a, a language movement. Um, I think that has been um, um, pleasantly um, surprising and, and just really rewarding. That's wonderful to hear. And um, I will add my uh, feedback as well that the, the report was um, just really it, so interesting to read, but also really empowering. It really felt like there were some, so many clear examples of ways that we could, um, that ways that we could um, uh, really help make the case for, <laughs> for, um, uh, for, um, uh, for, fulfilling the potential of, <laughs> of every child. Um, and I think one thing that has been interesting is, has been that I have found that um, there's many findings um, in the report that not only relate to NSVRC's um, research on the framing of, um, of sexual violence, but that also um, pertain to so many other public health issues. And I've been sharing with folks who um, aren't necessarily working on ACEs, aren't necessarily working <laughs> on, on projects specific to children. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there's, there's, um, uh, there's so much valuable information in the report and there's such a significant role that ACEs play across efforts to prevent violence um, that it is really great information for folks. Oh, thank you so much. I will take that back uh, to the team that, that helped work with this and did the research and also just make a little plug that I hope you can invite some of my colleagues 
um, fact, and you know, when you've got time, because we are doing um, a really robust set of research specific to, um, to child sexual abuse, preventing that is in partnership with the research that's happening at John Hopkins. Um, Dr. Letourneau is got a, a big grant under um, NIH and some other folks. And so we are the, the framing partners there. And so I hope that we'll be able to, as we have results coming out of that, share that with, with your listeners and your network. Absolutely. We're excited to do that. We want to thank you so much for joining us and please um, bring our thanks back to your full team at Frameworks Institute. Um, We're going to include the links to the full report in our show notes, and we really look forward to continuing to make these connections as we try out these new frameworks and sharing of the lessons across different fields. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. And we look forward to talking with you and your team again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resource on the Go. For more information, about preventing sexual assault, visit our website at www.nsvrc.org. To learn more about the Reframing Childhood Adversity Promoting Upstream Approaches report, check out our show notes at www.nsvrc.org podcasts or visit frameworksinstitute.org. You can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc.org.